Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We are in a new series today called Don't Take the Bait. The um, idea is this. The devil wants to trap you and I whenever we entertain an offense toward God, toward other people. And I'm here to say today, you don't have to take the bait. As I was thinking about this series, I'm reminded of the folly of a fool. You, you know this, we've seen it in life. There are people out there that are foolish, and the Proverbs 19.3 describes them. A person's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Have you ever seen somebody that was strong-willed? They did what they wanted to do. Ain't nobody going to tell them to do. And then when they make a mess, who do they blame? God. It happens all the time. Sadly, but true. And then, of course, there's the folly of pride. Maybe perhaps uh, another spectrum on the continuum of that is people who are so sure of themselves that they're never going to do that. I'm reminded of Peter who told Jesus, Lord, if, if even, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away, says the man who denied Jesus three times. And so what I'm here to say today, I guess, is one of those messages that really is a, a fastball. You know, it's a, it's a warning. It's a, it's, a, it's a wake up to tell us that you and I can come to places in our walk with God when we get offended with God, Okay. And it's helpful for you and I to know that that is a reality that can happen, that sometimes we can find ourselves in a situation where we end up in that place, and I want to spare you from that happening to you. Now, you might say, oh, how in the world can I be offended by God? Well, the inspiration from this series is a story that we'll look at in a little bit in Matthew chapter 11, where John the Baptist sends a couple disciples to ask Jesus a question, and it ends with Jesus saying, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And then I thought about Jesus' ministry, and I was reading in my quiet time this week for D group. We're in John, and I was reading John 6. And in John chapter 6, all these people are following Jesus. I mean, they've just seen him do miracles. He's fed you know, the multitude of the 5,000. Everybody wants to go to see Jesus preach and teach and get some fish and chips. I mean, hey, he feeds you too. This is great. And all of a sudden, he starts talking to them about being the bread that came from heaven. And he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part with me. And people hear that and they go, that's weird. That's a hard teaching. I don't think I can accept that. And at that point in John 6, many people began to walk away from Jesus. And it's a noticeable shift. It's, it's when his ministry goes from being popular to unpopular and the nation begins to slowly reject him and the religious leaders want to kill him. It's at that pivotal moment in, in Jesus' earthly ministry. And what stands out to me is in John 6, verse 61... The crowd is walking away. The disciples are still trying to make sense of what just happened. And Jesus looks at his disciples in John 6, 61. And it says, Jesus, knowing in himself 
that his disciples were complaining about this, he asked them, does this offend you? Let that linger for just a minute. Does this offend you? And that's the warning from God's word that sometimes we have to heed. Now, as I think about this series, as I think about this message today, I got to thinking about how, you know, going down the road, I noticed a few years ago that all of a sudden something looked different on the highways. And Roger, I have to confess, I didn't know what you called it until I looked it up. It's called rumble strips, right? You know, those grooves in the asphalt that are on the uh, edge there before you get off on the shoulder. And, and depending on where you drive, sometimes you see them right on the, that, middle, that middle lane in the highway too, right? And uh, they're called rumble strips. And in case you're wondering why they're called rumble strips and what they're there for, there's these grooves uh, in the side of the road that create this rumbling noise as soon as you get out of your lane. It's to warn you, in case you're falling asleep or you're not paying attention, that, hey, you need to get back in your lane. You know, rumble strips are a metaphor for life. They can jolt our attention back to the task at hand. They can prompt us to get back on track. And they can warn us to stay in our lane. We know when I think about our walk with God, the key is how do we respond to God's Word? How do we respond to God's Word? You know, there's Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's all about God's Word. And in verse 165, it says, Abundant peace belongs to those who love your instruction, and nothing makes them stumble. In other words, when we love God's Word and we listen and do what it says, then God gives us peace. Peace with Him, peace with other people, peace that surpasses our understanding. And that peace is so nice. And because we're living that way, nothing makes us stumble. We love the Lord, we listen to His Word, and we live it out with the help of His Spirit. That's the ideal. And that's the response we ought to have to God's Word. Now, you've heard me say this before, and I'll say it again. Why don't more people read the Bible? I was looking at some stats over the weekend. The Center, I think, for Bible Engagement or something like that did a survey. And since COVID to now, interest in God's Word has gone up, but reading has gone down. And then I go, well, why is it that people don't read uh, God's Word more? I, I, I know the the normal, you know, reasons that people give, excuses, but, you know, oh, I, I've never read it before, or, you know, where do I start, or I'm busy, or I don't like to read, and so on and so forth. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and, 17, uh, 16, 16 and 17, if we read that verse, it says that all Scripture, like from beginning to end, all Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable. In other words, this book is the Word of God. It's inspired by God, and it's useful for four things. It says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And one day it dawned on me that when you read those four things that God's Word's for, two of them are positive and two of them are negative. How would you like to read a book that there's a 50-50 shot. You might not like what you, what you read or hear. Think about that. I mean, if we prayerfully come to the Word of God and say, Lord, speak to me, He might teach us. He might 
train us, and that's exciting. We learn something, we put it into practice, we see God do something in our life. But what if we say, God, speak to me, and we open His Word, and He rebukes us, and He corrects us? Well, that's not very fun. But all of that together is God's Word. Now, let me narrow this message down. We're talking about don't take the bait. We're talking about being offended toward God. And the question I want to raise today and hopefully help you answer is this. What happens when God's plan does not match your expectation? Let me say that again. What happens when God's plan does not match your expectations? Let's look, uh, if we will, and uh, John the Baptist. I want to kind of give you some background. Some of you probably know who John the Baptist is, some don't. Okay, he's a guy that appeared on the scene at the beginning of the New Testament, and he pointed to the one who would come after him. But look, if you will, in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. That's where we're introduced to John the Baptist. I want you to kind of get an idea of who this guy is. In Mark chapter 1, verse 2, it says, As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And so the gospel writer Mark wants you to know that as he introduces Jesus Christ, he starts with a guy named John the Baptist. And he goes all the way back to Isaiah the prophet and says, this is important because what this guy was doing was fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah the prophet said there would, become, there would come a day and a time where there would be a messenger that comes before the Messiah, that he would be in the wilderness and he would get everybody's attention. And now here we are in the, day of, in, the, in the days and life of Christ and there's this guy in the wilderness named John the Baptist that's getting everybody's attention. It says there in verse 4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside, and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. You know, I look at that now and go, wow, here is this guy that uh, is out in the middle of the wilderness, and everybody's going out there to check this guy out, see him and hear him, and they're responding to his message. They're responding to God. They're confessing their sins, okay? And then it says... John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. I don't think he's the guy you want to have lunch with, unless that's your kind of diet. But that was John the Baptist, and he proclaimed to them, One who is more powerful than I am is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let me jump to John chapter 1 for a moment. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19, here's a little bit more about John the Baptist. It says, This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? So as, as with anything, here's this guy that's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy in the wilderness. He's, his role is to be a messenger to prepare a way for the Messiah He's proclaiming a message. It's getting all kinds of attention. All these people are going out there to check him out and hear him, and they're responding to the message. They're being baptized. They're confessing their sins. And now all of a sudden, the Jewish religious leaders said, hey, 
Let's go send somebody out there to say, hey man, who are you? Show us your calling card. You know, what are you doing here? And it says here in John 1.20, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. So just so you know, John the Baptist, when they pushed him, he said, look, I'm not the one. I'm just here to tell you that one is coming, okay? But I'm not the one. And then in verse 21, it says, what then, they asked him, are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Well, who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? And he said, and he quotes Isaiah, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? And John said, I baptize with water. Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, this is the good part, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was and he says, that's the one. Okay, that's the one. But let's keep reading there in verse 30. He says, this is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. I don't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then John walks off the record here with these words. I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now you know who John the Baptist is. He fulfilled the prophecy from Isaiah. He is the messenger that will prepare the way of the Lord, the Messiah. He goes out in the wilderness. He proclaims a message and he somehow miraculously, this, this crazy looking man gets everybody's attention and everybody's getting, giving him a hearing and he's preparing them for the Lord. He's talking about repentance and they're confessing their sins and they're being baptized. And he says, there's one that's coming after me. But you know what? As great as John the Baptist was, he had his share of problems too. See, John preached a hard message. He preached judgment. He preached repentance. And John the Baptist wasn't afraid to speak truth to power. And one day, the king, King Herod, the Tetrarch, he had an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And when John the Baptist heard about it, he called a spade a spade. And you know what happens when you're the king and you don't like what somebody's saying? You censor them. You prosecute them. You persecute them. You do whatever you want to do because you've got the authority and the power. And in Luke 3.19, it says, When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. And so now, John the Baptist is in prison because he spoke truth to power. And he ends up being in prison for a while. 
until he's ultimately beheaded. Now, that's John the Baptist. Now, while John is in prison, as time goes on, he begins to question things. Now, let's not be too hard on John. When life doesn't go the way you thought it should, don't you start questioning things? Don't you start second-guessing yourself? And many Bible scholars believe that he was probably in prison for at least a year when this next scenario happened. He sent two of his disciples. I want you to go to Jesus. I want you to ask him a question for me. And now we're in Matthew 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Ouch. Now, before we go there for a moment, let's kind of think about this. Jesus is referring to some prophecies in Isaiah as well, ironically. And there's multiple prophecies in Isaiah that speak of the Messiah and the works he would do. You know, he would heal the sick, he'd raise the dead. It goes on to say in other places, he would set the captives free, okay? And uh, John the Baptist knows his Bible. And he's seeing some of the works that Jesus is doing, and he's going, yeah, that fits the calling card, but Lord, why am I still in prison? I did everything that you wanted me to do. I told people the truth. It didn't matter who they were, from the least to the greatest. I rolled out the red carpet. Believe you're the one. Why am I still in prison? And by the way, last time I checked and heard, why are people rejecting you? Hmm. That's where John the Baptist is. And so, I want to kind of back up for a moment to show you something about Jesus that nobody understood until after the resurrection. This is a detour, but it's a short one and a good one. Go to Luke 4 for a moment. I want you to get a sense very quickly of what Jesus knew about who He was and His purpose on earth and what the Father had sent him to do and called him to do. Instead of speculate about what people think, let's go back and get into Jesus' mind and and, and know the truth. And in Luke 4, we have a very revealing situation. You know, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and here is a story where he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, and I want you to see what happens in Luke 4, verse 16. In Luke 4, 16, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. That's where he grew up. And as usual, see, it was his habit, his custom. He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, remember, this is way before the printing press. Back in Bible times, everything was written on a scroll, and it was rolled up. And so he stands up to read. They hand him a scroll. 
it says the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. In other words, he was, he was looking for a specific passage in Isaiah to read. And as he's unrolling the scroll, he finds it. And I want you to see what he says when he reads. He reads from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. I'm thinking John, aren't you? And recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now watch closely. Pay attention here. He then rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And, it's, and the Bible says, And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They got so mad at him, they ran him out of town on the brow of a cliff, and they were going to push him off when he just simply walked through the crowd and disappeared. What just happened? He read a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about a coming Messiah. And he stops, he rolls it up, and he says, Today it's been fulfilled. Which is one way of saying, you're looking at him. We, we talked at Easter, and I'll say it again. Why did the religious leaders ultimately demand to kill Jesus? Because he claimed to be the Messiah, and he really was, but they rejected it, they couldn't accept it, and they ultimately pushed, pushed the forward, we're going to kill him because he's blasphemy. He's claiming to be God, and he's not. And yet he rose from the dead to prove he was and he is. Okay? But I want you to go to Isaiah 61 for a moment. Because if you don't know Isaiah 61, you're not going to know what just happened. And it's kind of like explaining a, an impressive, cool magic car trick. You know, if you don't know what to look for, you don't know what happened. Well, I want to show you what to look for so you know what happened. He quoted Isaiah 61, verse 1, and part of verse 2. He didn't quote the whole thing. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus stopped and rolled up the scroll. But what does the rest say? And the day of our God's vengeance. See, Jesus came the first time to purchase our salvation. He's coming again. That's when he'll rule and he'll judge. Okay? And so Jesus knew what time it was. He knew what he had come to do this first time. He knows what he's going to do when he comes the second time. And so he stopped and he didn't talk about God's vengeance. He talked about the year of the Lord's favor. And I think John the Baptist really had a hard time. He saw all the miracles. He saw all the signs and wonders. He saw all the great things that Jesus was doing. But I think he was thinking, what about setting the captives free? What about that? What about this judgment? What about that? What's going on, Jesus? See, what do you do when God doesn't meet 
your expectations. No wonder in Luke 24, when Jesus rose again and one of His post-resurrection appearances was talking to these two men that were on the way to the road to Emmaus. And there in the middle of their conversation in Luke 24, verse 26, Jesus tells them, Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted for them the things concerning Himself and all the Scriptures. They didn't like being under the boot of Rome. They were looking for a political leader. They were looking for someone that could stand up to the regime and lead them to bigger and better and brighter days in the future. And that's not why Jesus came. No wonder Paul said it best to young Timothy in the ministry. 1 Timothy 3.16. We know John 3.16. What about 1 Timothy 3.16? Paul says, And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Yeah, this mystery of godliness. But I've took a little bit longer than usual to kind of set the stage. I wanted you to understand John the Baptist and his call and his role. And I wanted you to understand Jesus and his understanding of what God had called him to do and what he came to do. And now that we've got that established, let's get back to the question and let's answer it. What do you do when, you, when God doesn't do what you expect? And Jesus said to John the Baptist's disciples in Matthew eleven six, Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Let's talk for a few moments of what happens when we are in danger of being offended by God. Now that word offense, it literally in the Greek word, the Greek word for it is scandaliso. And it means to set a snare or a trap or a stumbling block. It causes you to, to stumble and to literally fall into a trap. And what Jesus is saying is, you know, I don't want you to fall into a trap when God doesn't do what you think He should or expect Him to do. And I think if we're really honest, I think that's a big deal in life because people will come to church, they'll get involved and they'll proclaim to profess Christ and then something happens that they can't accept they don't understand or they don't like. They either point the finger at God or at other people and they walk away. And today, this message addresses that. So listen closely. We are in danger of being offended at God when, number one, we misunderstand His mission. We misunderstand His mission. John the Baptist had been in prison for about a year. He had heard about the miracles of Jesus. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember, he went on record, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. He even pointed other people to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John was in prison for speaking truth to power. And the longer he sat there, I think the more frustrated he got. Why was he still in prison if Jesus is the Messiah? Why is the nation who 
came out to see him and hear him, and he was getting them ready, is now walking away from Jesus because it's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And they're offended at him. Why? Why, why, why? When you and I misunderstand God's mission, we're in danger of being offended by the Lord. You may give you an Old Testament example. How about Jonah? Remember Jonah? All we know at first is he is a man of God. And God tells him, go over there to Nineveh and preach against it. You know, that kind of sounds good, right? They're not right with God. I've called you to preach. I want you to go over there and preach against it. I'll preach against it. All right, let's go. No, that wasn't what he wanted to do. He went the opposite direction that God told him to do. He went down to Joppa. And then when he got on the boat, he went down into the inside of the boat. And God's word is painting a picture. He's going down, 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 down. He's going the wrong way. Ultimately, ultimately, he's thrown overboard to save everybody else. God prepares a great fish to swallow him. And uh, you know the story. The word of the Lord comes to him a second time. God gives him a second chance. Aren't you glad God gives people second chances? I know I am. And this time, this great fish spits him up on dry ground. Here he is with his bleach, vomit, fish, stinking hair, making a beeline to Nineveh. And when they see him coming, he says, if you don't repent, God's going to turn this city upside down, right? And, And the crazy thing is, I don't know what it was about him, but they heard and the Bible says this is the, only, this is the only time in all of the Bible, Old and New Testament, where an entire city repented and had revival from the least to the greatest. They even made the animals wear sackcloth and ashes. Okay, you can read that in Jonah. And when it's all said and done, everybody gets right with God and everybody has a revival except Jonah. And Jonah comes over here outside the city and he's fighting mad. God, why aren't you destroying them yet? Time's ticking. Why aren't you doing it? And he, he, he finally, if you read Jonah 4, you'll find out that Jonah basically confesses, this is why, God, this is why I didn't want to come here. This is why I didn't want to preach to the people in Nineveh. Because I know you're a gracious God, and I know you'll give people second chances, and I don't like these people. They, they were the political enemies of Israel. You see, Jonah misunderstood God's mission. God wants all people to be saved. God wants everybody to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to come to a point of repentance, even the people that you don't like or the people you think God don't like. He wants them all to come to that point to where they'll say yes to Him. And Jonah didn't like it. And God finally put him in his place. He had a little, you know, tree thing, plant that grew up. It gave shade to Jonah. And while he's stewing in the sun, the shade comes over him. He's like, man, this is nice. I like this little spot. And then the wind comes, and then a worm comes, and all of a sudden that plant is dead. And you know what? He is fighting mad. And you know what God says to this prophet? 
you're more concerned over plants than you are people. Ouch. Jonah misunderstood the mission. And I think you and I are in danger of being offended against God when we misunderstand the mission. The second thing, we're in danger of being offended against God when we refuse to believe His promise. Now, I believe that John the Baptist was just going through a time of tough doubt. I think that he got it all right in the end. I really do. And if you keep reading in Matthew 11, Jesus had nothing but good to say about John. He commended him. And so, but I look at this and go, what if it had gone the other way? You know, because many times when we put ourselves in someone else's shoes, could I have done that? Would I have done that? So my second point is, we refuse to believe God's promise. I think many times we can be offended at God when we refuse to believe His promise. I'm thinking about people that came to Jesus and walked away sad. First person I think of is the rich young ruler. I won't go there, but I'll tell you the story. The Gospels tell the story of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. He was wealthy. He was young. He was ambitious. He was upwardly mobile. And he comes to Jesus and he says, What must I do to get eternal life? And if you're not paying attention to the question, you're thinking, this is great. He wants to know how to be saved. That is awesome. But that's not what he asked. He said, what must I do to receive eternal life? He's used to working hard. He's used to earning his own way. And this well-meaning but misguided fellow thinks, just tell me what I got to do, Lord, and I'll do it myself. You see what's wrong with that? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Which ones? I've kept them since my youth. And he throws out a few of the commandments. Yeah, I've done all that. And one of the gospel accounts, I think it's Mark, but I may be wrong. But one of them says that Jesus looking at him, loved him. In other words, Jesus looks at him and he loves him. He's like, man, I see your heart, man. And I'm going to have to lower the boom. Because you're clueless. You don't see what I see. And he, he, he saw into the man's heart. He knew that he loved money. And he knew it was an idol in his heart. And he looks at him. He loves him. He says, I tell you what. One thing you lack. Just one thing. I'm sure the guy's itching closer going, all right, Lord, what is it? He says, so everything you have, give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And the Bible says that he went away sad. Because he was very wealthy. His wealth wasn't the problem. Whether he had a little money or a lot of money, that wasn't the problem. The problem was what he loved. He loved money more than God. That's why they say the love of money is the root of all the evil. Okay, Money is money. It's neither good nor bad. It's what you do with it. And the love of money is when money has you. And money had this guy. And he chose money over the Savior because he walked away sad. You and I are in danger of being offended at the Lord when we refuse to believe His promise. And the last thing, number three, we're in danger of being offended at the Lord when we question His character. You know, I go back to, uh, I go back to the beginning, the Garden of Eden, when uh, the devil tempted Eve. Did God really say Look at that fruit. Don't it look good? Tastes good too. Did you know it could make you wise? 
You can know what God knows. What he did in a subtle, sinister way is he planted the seed to where Eve doubted God's goodness. And she began to question God's character. And she saw what was right in front of her and it looked good. And she's like, I wonder if God's holding out on us. You and I are in danger of being offended with the Lord when we begin to question his character. Now, let me say this up front. Elizabeth Elliot, I like her quote on this. She said, there are those who insist that it's a very bad thing to question God. To them, why is a rude question. But that depends, I believe on whether it's an honest search in faith for his meaning or whether it's the challenge of unbelief and rebellion. And I agree. I don't think it's wrong to question God. If you're a seeker, if you're really seeking the Lord on something, I think it's appropriate to question God. But when it comes from a place of unbelief and rebellion, that's an entirely different matter when you begin to question the character of God. Years ago, when I went through experiencing God, Henry Blackaby talked about, you know, when his daughter Carrie had cancer, and he said he had a choice on how he would deal with that reality and how he would look to his Lord through it. And he said, you know, I've never questioned the goodness of God, and I've never questioned the love of God because as a believer in Christ, that was settled at the cross. And that's true. I want to give you a couple verses real quick before I wrap up today. Uh, things that help me when it comes to when things happen in life that we don't understand. And I want to tell you right now, there's a lot of things I don't understand. And when I was younger, I felt the need to explain them. I don't anymore. You know, it's just one more thing I don't get, you know. But God's still in control and God's still good. But Romans 5, 8 is an anchor for me. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before I came to knew Jesus, before I ever came to church, before I knew God, knew about God, or even cared about God, he loved me and he loved you. And while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for us. Never forget that. The second verse that's an anchor for me is John 3, 17. Again, we know John 3, 16, but what does John 3, 17 say? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. And anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Do you see that? Jesus didn't come the first time to condemn us. He came to save us. And if you will come to him humbly in faith, he will save you. And it's that simple. If you don't come to him, you're condemned already. You might say, well, who's condemning me? How about the law of God? The law that God gave Moses to give to Israel that's in the Bible. Man can take the Ten Commandments off the courthouse. But in heaven's supreme court, it still stands. And when we stand before God someday and he points to the law, we're all going to be shown to be a lawbreaker, a sinner, someone who has broken God's commandments. And then judgment is reasonable. Matter of fact, judgment is certain. 
But here's the thing. You and I have a choice. And I have one more verse for you. And it's in 1 Peter 2. You know, Peter, he, uh, he let the Lord down. He denied Him three times, right? And yet, Peter was restored. And look what Peter says about it in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 through 8. He says, as you come to Him, he's referring to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in Him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one's become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over, they stumble because they disobey the word they were destined for this. Ultimately, when it comes to, are you offended at God? Look at the big picture. Jesus is the rock of our faith. And you can either come to that rock and build your life on Him, or you can reject that rock, and that rock will be a rock that you trip over because it's a stumbling stone. And at the day of judgment, you'll have no excuse because you rejected God's one and only Son, who is the one and only Savior. And that's the only way you and I can be saved. So before you and I hold on to this idea, well, I'm offended at God. He's not doing what I think He should do. He's not doing what I expect Him to do. Well, back up. He's the rock. Are you going to build your life on Him and trust Him? Or are you going to kick against the goads and one day trip over the stone and realize that you missed it? I don't know about you, but my prayer for all of us today is that we won't become offended toward God. That even when the Lord does things that we don't expect and we don't understand, we'll humbly come to Him and depend on Him step by step, day by day. Won't you stand, musicians, if you would come, ushers, if you would come, we're going to have a time of response. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the worship. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement we see. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Lord, when life doesn't go the way we think it should, when we don't have an explanation for our circumstances, when we wonder, Lord, why aren't you doing something? When we want to know why. Lord, when we begin to doubt even what we know to be true, Lord, help us to remember your words. Look at what you've seen. Look at what you hear. The blind see, the dead are raised. And blessed is he who is not offended on account of me. Lord, I pray that no matter what happens in life, good, bad, or ugly, they would, that we wouldn't end up in a place where we're offended at you. Lord, help us to get right with you no matter how hard the medicine is to take. 
Lord, we love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact a pastor, please visit phbcsomerset.com.